Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 430. Very happy Hanukkah. This program is in merit of Baruch bin Yaman ben Menucha Lana and Miriam bas Chayesar Altes. You could seal ben Leir Rochel and Rochel bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todas ben Miriam and Sarah bas Rochel Altes. Tonight is the last night of Hanukkah. It's called Zeus Hanukkah, where we light all the eight candles, all the eight lights. So it's the full glory of Hanukkah and the celebration of Hanukkah. So we'll begin with talking about Zeus Hanukkah. First of all, just the very message of Zeus Hanukkah is what? We know that Hanukkah represents the miracle where they couldn't find any pure olive oil to be able to light the menorah. And the miracle was, number one, that they found a cruise of oil. But it only had enough to light for one day, and it burned for eight days. Until they were able to produce new oil, and then the menorah was rededicated. And that's why it's called Hanukkah. From the word dedication, a rededication. This is all about Hanukkah. But Zeus Hanukkah is the day when we light all the candles, meaning the whole miracle is expressed. Now, the reason we grow from day to day is because Milam B'Kaydish. That's the reason Hillel, Beis Hillel, says the first night you light one, the second light two. Milam B'Kaydish means to elevate in Kedusha. So the first lesson is that we have to always grow in good things. Never suffice with what you did yesterday. Every day you grow. The eighth day, we now conclude the whole cycle, plus number eight, because the cycle is seven, the cycle and structure of existence, and eight represents transcendence. So now that we've completed the entire cycle, we have all eight days. And Zeis Chanukah, that's one of the reasons it's called Zeis. This is Chanukah, Zeis Chanukah Samizbeach. This, as you can point to it and see, not just the one candle or two, but all eight. And in that sense, it has the power to illuminate and to warm, to bring light in the fullest sense of the word. Now you could say, why not 9, 10, 11, 12? Just as it is with the week. There's seven days in the week. Shabbos is the seventh day. Same thing with the cycle of seven and seven days of Passover, seven days of Sukkot. Then comes the eighth day, Shemini Atzeres, and Pesach in, outside of Israel, an eighth day. So eight represents transcendence. Shemini Sehekev, as the Rajbo says. So when we say seven and, or eight, we're talking about all of time. Every time has its period. So there are other holidays throughout the year when you celebrate different functions or different qualities. On Passover, for example, the quality of freedom. As Hanukkah is the quality of illuminating the darkness. And as is Hanukkah, we have the whole conclusion and the full power. So what it means in practical chassidus applied terms, that we now have the power this night to be able to overcome any challenge and not just with one candle or two, but a full attack. We talk about an attack in a positive way. Just as light dispels darkness, the same thing, all the light of this spiritual light dispels all the darkness, the inhibitions, the fears, the insecurities. Every form of darkness that can occupy our psyches and our spirits, so Hanukkah represents the light that pierces that darkness. And just as light naturally dispels darkness, so too it is in our life. 
when you bring spirituality into, the, into your life, the more you bring godliness and ruchnius and spiritual matter, meaning not your own survival and, and material things, but something sublime that focuses on transcendence and that is which is beyond us, that dispels darkness. And on Hanukkah, the last day of Hanukkah, we have the power to do so in the fullest sense of the word. So that's lesson number one of the eight days of Hanukkah. We received a bunch of number of questions about Zeis Hanukkah and about Hanukkah in general. So I'm going to go through them as we usually do. This is an opportunity to also station identification. This is my life, Chassidah Supplied. We have a website called chassidahsupplied.com where you can see this program and all previous 429 programs. We're already deep into the ninth year, almost ending nine years since we began this program, as well as other resources on learning chassidahs and teaching chassidahs and applying chassidahs to your life. So check it out at chassidahsapply.com. There you can also submit any question completely anonymously on the forum chassidahsapply.com. Since we're at the end of the year and it's the end of Hanukkah, I want to take this opportunity as well, firstly, to thank all of you and each one of you who contributed to our end-of-year end campaign, Gift of Meaning campaign, at giftofmeaning.com. In case you have not done so, you'd like to contribute to support these programs, which are free and which are quite multiple, many programs a week that reach many different people, please go to giftofmeaning.com. The campaign is still open. Please contribute generously. Okay. With that, let us go and discuss some other matters of Zeis Hanukkah and Hanukkah in general. Is Zeis Hanukkah an opportune time for blessings for having children? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, did the Rebbe once say of Abraham that the day of Zeis Hanukkah is a zgula for blessings for women who don't yet have children to have blessings for children? What is the connection of having children to Zeis Hanukkah and what can those who need these blessings do to actualize and manifest them, the blessings? So yes, indeed, the Rebbe, who was Shabbos Parshim Yikates, Zeis Hanukkah, the year Tovshin Yud Gimel, which would correspond to 1952. The Rebbe quoted from Sifrei Poelen, from Polish Chesidus Shesvarim. It's actually the Bnei Yisachar. If you want to look it up, my Mori Chedish Kislev and Tevis, Maimer 2, Eis Yud. So in that section, he brings that Zeis Hanukkah is a time, as Gula, an auspicious, opportune time, for Pekadakaris, which means to open up the womb of a woman that may have difficulty giving birth, parents that have difficulty giving birth. And the reason for that is because Hanukkah radiates, as the Arizal writes, as it says in the Kisfarizal, the Yud Gimel Midas Hadachimim, the 13 compassion, the 13 attributes of divine compassion, so divine compassion in general, but especially in the eighth day of Hanukkah is the eighth of the Tikkunim which is Venetza Venake, which is connected to fertility, to the union of husband and wife, the sacred union that opens up the channels to give birth. So absolutely, this is an opportune time. And um, we all understand that when, when there's a difficulty, giving birth means there's some channel or some conduit that is either blocked or there's an obstacle. So we have the eighth day of Hanukkah, Edei of Hanukkah draws and opens up these black channels. So firstly, may Hashem bless everyone who is in need of a child, to have a healthy, beautiful child, especially on this day, Edei of Hanukkah. And what do we do? Number one is we 
open ourselves up through davening, through praying to Hashem, through celebrating Zeis Hanukkah to the fullest extent, the joy of Hanukkah, the lighting of the menorah, the eighth candle. All of that is the keli we create, the container we create for all these blessings. Obviously, anything you can do, whether you're giving additional tzedakah, which is also accustomed to doing Hanukkah, or helping others in need, is also a way of creating the right container. The truth is that there's no limit in the containers we create. But especially on Zeis Hanukkah, we have extra power due to this uh, concept of um, the words that the Rebbe brought then. And then the Rebbe actually in that Fabrengen, after he said these words, he said he turned to people, say L'chaim, for a bracha for children. And it was very clear that he was referring to people who were, had this issue. I heard later that there were those that actually within the next year had a new child, even though till then they were not able to. So indeed, it's a bodhikamanusa, as the expression goes. It's a proven, um, a proven method to do so. And again, this would be an opportunity for having bone chayim revicha. And those of us that have children, those of us still need brachas that the children should be healthy, should be give chsidish and yiddish and nachas. All this is definitely fitting to Hanukkah. Now Hanukkah also, of course, we know is connected to children. So you give Hanukkah gelt to children. And Hanukkah we use as an educational form, Hanukkah from the word chinuch, education. So it's all about dedicating the temple, dedicating the menorah, which is every child, is a menorah. Every child is a migdash ma'at, is a mini sanctuary. So it all represents this theme. Okay, is there a connection between Yom Kippur and Zeis Hanukkah? Is it taught somewhere that the judgments that are sealed in Yom Kippur aren't finalized until Zeis Hanukkah when the ink dries? Is this a, a last chance for us to down for a good year for material blessings? And what is the best way to accomplish this on Zeis Hanukkah before the opportunity goes away? So yes, indeed, this too is stated in Zehar and in Kabbalah in general. talks about the idea that Rosh Hashanah is when the books are written of the year, when our destiny of the year is established, and that's, that's Ksiva Teva, and Yom Kippur Ksima, and Gmachsima Teva is when it's sealed. The final sealing we know is an Eshayin Rabbah, that says clearly in the Zehar. And then... It says that on Hanukkah there's still one more final step of a total final sealing. What does that mean? It means that there's always the opportunity throughout the year to always make things better. But nevertheless, as we understand, God's relationship with us is dynamic. And as such, there's a constant process going on. Hanukkah has a connection to the conclusion of Tishrei. And what's the connection? This leads us to the next question. Was the first Hanukkah... called Sukkot of Kislev because they were there, because that year they weren't able to observe Sukkot in the base of Migdash because it was defiled and occupied by the, Greek, by the Greeks. So right after cleaning and rededicating the temple, they wanted to make up for the Sukkot, they missed out, so they, they did all the Sukkot rituals. And only the next year they recognized Hanukkah as its own independent holiday. Perhaps that is also another reason Hanukkah is eight days, just like Sukkot is eight days. Sukkot is eight days. And that indeed is, says in the Medrash, the Medrash called Medrash Hanukkah. It's also brought in Seder Hadadis. 
and in Orach HaShulchan, and the Bala Turim, in chapter in Parshish Emer, talks about it as well, that when you see it's hinted to, where it talks about the three Sholosh Regalim, Pesach, Shvu, Sukkot. After Sukkot, it comes, it talks about, the next verse is about the, uh, the pure olive oil with which they lit the manure. So the Bala Turim brings, as well as other commentaries, that that's a hint to Hanukkah. And being that it follows Sukkot, so indeed, the eight days of the seven days of Sukkot with Shmini Hatzeres correspond to the eight days of Hanukkah, or the other way around. The eight days of Hanukkah represent. In the Medrash Hanukkah, it says that one of the things that the Greeks wanted to abolish was Sukkot. So Sukkot has that connection. So even though Hanukkah is not actually Sukkot, but it has a correspondence to those days. I remember the year when the Rebbe had the heart attack in 1977, Tov Shin so indeed, because the Rebbe did not fabring that year on Shmini Atzeres, on the night of Simchus Teda and on Simchus Teda, he spoke after Yom Tif. So Zeis Hanukkah, the Rebbe said he would fulfill that which was missing from Sukkot because it's connected the eighth day to the eighth day of Sukkot. Shmini Atzeres is connected to the eighth day of Hanukkah, and that's when the Rebbe washed, which he would always do on Shmini and Simchus Teda, and that was Ashlamah. So again, capturing that idea. In practical terms, the similarity is the number eight is the fact that, as I said before, that number seven represents the cycle of time. Eight always represents one dimension above that, transcendence. Sukkot has that through joy, and Hanukkah has it through illuminating the darkness. To illuminate darkness requires a higher level of light than just regular light. So the menorah in the temple was a candelabra of seven branches. But Hanukkah is eight, representing this additional transcendent dimension. So as such, just as Shmini Atzeres, Shainer Rabbe and Shmini Atzeres is the conclusion of what happened in Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, so Hanukkah represents that in a renewal type of way, especially that that year they tried to abolish and they, they eliminated Sukkot. They, they made it difficult where they said it was it was illegal to celebrate Sukkot. Now, so then when Hanukkah renews that, we have a renewed element of the sealing of the judgments that come on the end of Tishrei, and that is established and manifest in Hanukkah. So similar to what you say, for example, Shavuos, Amat, and and Purim. So the Gemara says in Shabbos, that Midoy Rabbalah that by Matan because God placed a mountain over them and in a sense gave them an ultimatum, so there was still a room to say that the Jews could say, we, weren't, we didn't completely accept the Torah at our own volition. Was, we were compelled to do so. That's why it says, V'kimu, v'kibla Yehudim, kimu v'kibla Yehudim. That Purim, they did accept it at their own. So it's like a conclusion of Matan So similar, you can say, that Hanukkah is like a conclusion of Sukkot. Sukkot was a gift that was given from above. Hanukkah came after there was a darkness, after there was a defiling and the contamination of the temple, and the light that came out of the darkness. So it has also an element of the Sukkot's energy in Hanukkah. Okay. So another person writes, is there a connection between Hakel, which is the eighth year of the calendar cycle, and Hanukkah, which is eight days? Since the number eight represents a transcendence over the natural order, is there also a transcendent energy for the entire year of Hakel? 
Okay, an interesting correlation. Hakel actually is connected to Sukkot. That's when the mitzvah was actually performed. In Sukkot, when the king would come out on the, on the platform and read from the Torah, the Rebbe explains how it's a Shnas Hakel the entire year, and indeed is the eighth year. After the sabbatical, after the seven years, and Shemitah being the seventh year, then comes the eighth year Hakel. And you could absolutely say Hakel is Hanoshim, Hanoshim V'taf, is a form of transcendent energy. And though I haven't seen it explicitly, though it's very possible the Rebbe himself made the connection, if somebody finds it, please let me know and I'll share it with the public, is that Hakel, the eighth of Hakel, is connected to Hanukkah, Hanukkah connected to Sukkot, and also has eight days. And that is definitely the transcendent energy. That it says explicitly that Hanukkah's eight days is transcendent. So you could say this year when we have Hakel and Hanukkah, so there you have a combination of both. Hakel, of course, is the synergy that comes when you bring together people from all walks of life, men, women, and children. And you read for them from the Torah to, in order to awaken and stimulate in them a reverence for, of God, to awe and reverence of God for their entire lives. So on Hanukkah this year, we have a special additional Hakel energy that just adds to all the blessings. And Anoshem Anoshem V'taf, so it also connects to the fact of a birth of children, Taf, that it's also as gula for having children. So when you connect all these ideas and chassidus applied, you come away with a very powerful day that we have here, the end of Hanukkah this year, a year of Hakel, the eight days of Hanukkah, the eighth year of Hakel, a conclusion of what happened on Sukkot, in Kippur, and Rosh Hashanah, all comes together on this very special day. That's why it's Hanukkah, you find in many Svarim, its special quality within Hanukkah itself being something unique and special as the last day of Hanukkah. Okay. If the idea of Hanukkah is to spread light to the darkest places, and the light represents the light of Torah Mitzvah, why do we start gradually with one candle and increase every night? So as I explained at the beginning of the, of the class, of this discussion, of this program, Mylan Bekedish. Yes, it's beautiful to be able to jump right to the top of a mountain, but for it to be integrated and internalized, Avedis Hashem, Tmidin Kisidran, serving God and all types of growth, requires step by step. If you jump too many steps, yes, you can get a taste of something greater, but it's not internalized. Just like we start teaching children. First, when they're five years old, you teach them the written Torah, Mikra. Ten years old, Mishnah. Fifteen years old, Talmud. That's how we grow. So growth requires going step by step. That's the whole point. Now, why eight days? Because as I said, each day represents one part of the cycle, finishing seven. Then the eighth day is the transcendence. But the eighth is only possible when you have the first seven. And that indeed is the reason that we go gradually. Which teaches us that when you grow yourself personally, and as well as educate and inspire others, always do it in a way, pace it. Pace it that the person can absorb. If you teach something too quickly, and they can't absorb it, it defeats the whole purpose. So a big part of education and a big part of inspiration is also teaching people at their pace so they can absorb it step by step, just like raindrops. If it comes down too much of a flood, it'll drown, it'll flood the fields. It's to come raindrops to be absorbed drop by drop by drop. 
until we then come to the culmination, the full, as I said, the full attack of light over darkness when you have all eight days together. Does someone need to have an actual manera to do the mitzvah? Would it suffice by just lining up eight candles in a row on a table and lighting them the proper time? Well, the answer is yes, you could do that. You see in some situations where people are in yeshiva or others don't have a menorah, you could put literally something, but you need to have what's called a ner. You can't just put a candle. You need to have somewhere the wick, the wick and the oil sits. So it doesn't have to be a menorah that's connected of all eight, not necessarily. But they have to be lined up, and they have to be lined exactly in a straight line, not in a semicircle in any other way. Now, Menorah, of course, makes it a lot easier, and it's also more representative of what the Menorah in the base of Middash was like. A full candelabra that has seven branch that has eight branches. In the base of Middash, it was seven, but the Hanukkah Menorah is eight. So that's the answer to that question. Any difference between the words Hanukkah and Hanukkah? That's just two pronunciations. I don't think there's any difference, significant difference. We explained why eight days, because of the transcendence. And to conclude the question before that I spoke about, that every night about why we go gradual, what the person also wrote, wouldn't it make more sense to light eight candles every night so we could spread more light faster? The faster we spread the light, the faster Mashiach will come. And the answer, as I said, no. Because you want it not Mashiach coming, you don't just want it to come, you want it to be internalized. And as such, you do it step by step by step. And every flame, let's not, even though the eighth day definitely has that full intensity, but let's not take away the mitzvahs every night. When you light the menorah that has all the power of that night, then one is one, two is two, but we build on it. That's what Mylon Bukhadish means. That we always grow in Kedusha, but that doesn't minimize the Kedusha of the previous day. Just means you're growing even further accumulatively. If commemorating the miracle of the oil is done through lighting a menorah, what difference does it make if we light it from right to left or left to right, or if we start in the middle and work our way toward the sides? As long as it's lit, shouldn't that be what counts? So, first of all, there are different opinions in in, uh, Poskim. Some say you light from left, left to right, which is how we do it. Some say from right to left. The reason we, write le- we go from left to right is number one is because we want to first honor the new candle, the new flame. The ones on the right were lit yesterday. So the first one was written all the way to the right. The new ones that are added are on the left. So you start with the new one. There's another, another reason given, is especially for a right-handed person. You don't want to skip and go to all the way to the right, you begin to the thing that's closest to your hand. Because that would be, like, in a sense, overlooking a mitzvah. So you begin right away with that. On a spiritual level, going from left to right, remember, mezuzim yamin, menedim and smile. The mezuzah is on the right side of the door, the menedim is on the left side, because the menedim is taking darkness, gvura, which is on the left, and going to the right, transforming the left to right. 
which is a deeper reason for going from left to right. So it is significant, even though, as I said, there are other opinions, which you can look up, it's, uh, it's, it's accessible. That is the bottom line. Okay. Does posting photos of your menorah on social media count as publicizing the miracle? Well, Pesumen Nisa, the Ness is actually lighting a menorah. Lighting a menorah with actual flame that comes not from light bulbs, but from oil or candles, an actual flame. The fact is there are menorahs that they light that are not basic actual flame sometimes. So it has an element because it's also publicizing something. So we're talking about the pure mitzvah is when there's an actual flame. The idea of publicity yeah, if you see a picture in a newspaper of a menorah burning, it has publicity. So why would social media not be included in that? The fact that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people see a menorah lit and it reminds them of Ner Hashem Nishmasodam, the flame of God, is the soul of man, of the human being. Ner Mitzvah V'Tela illuminating and lighting the, the candle of a mitzvah and the light of Tera. And if it inspires someone, then absolutely it has that element. But that's why I want to distinguish between the mitzvah part and the pirsuma part. So you could say the pirsum itself is coming from the actual mitzvah, from the actual flames. However, a picture of it or a social media post would also be included in publicizing it for the obvious reason that it just reaches many more people. They see it. They can't complete, fulfill the mitzvah through that by seeing the flame. They have to actually light a menorah or be yetzah through the blessing of someone who's lighting a menorah. But the concept of, of publicizing something, absolutely. It has, like anything, mitzvah, to spread and to disseminate and to publicize a mitzvah. I'm confused about the rule saying that we are not allowed to get any benefit from the Hanukkah candles. We are not even allowed to use their light to read a Torah book. But since it's a mitzvah to light them, we do get a benefit from doing the mitzvah of lighting. It almost seems like a paradox. Well, not completely, because the expression we use in Hanayar Sala, we say, We don't have permission to use them, only to see them. The question is why. Let's start with that. Why? There are some things that we're actually supposed to use. In other words, a certain, when you light certain, for example, Ne'er Shabbos, one of the reasons we light Shabbos candles is because by light, when you eat, and Shabbos is Enoch Shabbos, the pleasure of eating in an illuminated room is greater than re- eating in the dark. So there clearly you're using the light. But there's sometimes that a Ne'er is a Ne'er Kodesh. Not using it demonstrates that the sense of reverence and sanctity and respect of a Gedusha that's not meant to be used. It's meant to be dedicated to God alone. But it says, To look at them, yes. And as the Friedrich Rebbe says, the name of the Rebbe Marash, listen to the story that the flames tell you. That's also using them. You're learning from them. But you're not using them for any utilitarian purpose, to read by the light, or any other way to use those lights. For example, when you make Bdikas Chametz, we also use a candle, and the candle is meant to help illuminate, to find the chametz, to find the crumbs. But Hanukkah is meant to be the sanctity of the light itself, which in a way also captures the idea, Shem and Zayi 
we know that there was oil when the, in, the, in the base of the The problem was it was defiled. It wasn't Shemin Zayezach. It was not sealed with the seal of the high priest. So even though you can say, as it says, that since it's a public, a public mitzvah, even though it's impure, but they want, what, what you want, you want to have a Shemin Zayezach, you want the purest oil, which represents something pure, not just something that was used or something that may have been some way defiled. And that's what the mitzvah is about. Why? Because even though Hanukkah is coming to illuminate the darkness, but you want to illuminate it with pure oil, with pure, which represents the purity, the sublime purity of the divine. So there are things that Siddhis explains, there are things that we have access to and we're supposed to use, and there are things we're supposed to extend from a distance in a way and respect its reverence and its awe. So Hanukkah has that message, that's why we don't use it, only to look at it and gaze at it and remind us of the divine power to illuminate the darkest places. In a way, you could say psychologically, when you heal from a dark situation, so you could say, you know what, what difference does it make? If a fire is burning, you throw dirty water on it. At least you put the fire out. But sometimes that's not the case. When somebody has been hurt and abused, you don't want to bring something that is not complete and pure. Good, healthy healing is you want something completely sterilized. That's why you see, God forbid, surgery, or special medications that are in place to, to sterilize that area. You could say, one second, what difference does it make? Because the, on the contrary, the more toxins there were there, the more purity you want to counter it. So when you teach children, for instance, children are very sensitive and very vulnerable and very fragile. You want to give them the purest. You don't want to give them something that in any way is diluted. And the same is true when you heal something. Hanukkah representing darkness, so you want to bring the purest form of energy, Shem and Zayezoch. Pure olive oil. Same thing in the Beis Amigdash, pure olive oil. And in that sense, the same idea is that you don't use it for any purpose. So it's pure. It's pure in its own form. You watch it, you gaze at it, you look at it. And that's the benefit that we get from it. Not our benefit, but we allow the glow, the divine glow of those candles to enter into our beings, to saturate us, and to fill us with that powerful, powerful light. As you see, many questions. I can't cover them all. I'll try my best to cover as many as I can, but let me go a few more interesting questions. Could the Greeks have actually killed our souls? We have been taught that while the, that what the Greeks tried to do was worse than the Persians during Purim because Haman only wanted to kill us on the physical world. He wanted to kill every man, woman, and child. God forbid. But the Greeks forbidding us to study Torah would kill us in the world to come, which is the true everlasting world. Basically annihilating the spirit. Not just there's a Torah, a moral Torah, a book of inspiration, but Torah, the sanctity of it, the holiness of it. That is your Torah. Not just a moral set of ethical mitzvahs, but it's your law, your commandment. So, as the Levush says, Purim, therefore, is celebrated through Suda and Miel, because there the, the challenge was the attack on the Jewish body, and Hanukkah was the attack on the Jewish soul. That's why we celebrate it, not through just remembering the, the winning of the battle, but through Meneda, through light. Light is soul. Ne'er Hashem Ne'er Mitzvah That's why we celebrate the primary mitzvah, as we discussed last week, through lighting candles. 
So the person asked this question, but how is it possible that the Greeks could have accomplished killing us in the world to come if the Torah clearly says, Kol Since it says every Jew has a part in the world to come, how could the Greeks have even challenged that? How could it be such a, such a, comp, a concept? No matter what the Greeks did, it's impossible that they could have destroyed our Elam Abba. Indeed, that's the case. That's the whole miracle of Hanukkah. So your question is the answer. They wanted to do it, but they didn't accomplish it. So by desecrating the temple, what they do is was desecrating its Gedusha. They didn't mind that people study, and as I said, ethics, philosophy, morality. But why are you giving it holiness? Beis HaMikdosh. Why do you think this oil is specially pure? There's nothing pure about it. There's nothing holy about it. Everything in this world is a mundane material world. Be a good person, and that's that. Yes, so they wanted to annihilate. They wanted to destroy spirit to spirit. And the Ruchnis and the Elam But they were not successful. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. That no matter how much the enemy wants to destroy, there still remains. They can perhaps obfuscate it. They could suppress it. But they can't extinguish it. They can't annihilate it. So they found one cruise of pure oil in the burned eight days. And look, because of that, thousands of years later, we're still lighting the Maneda. These flames will never be eliminated. Even the flames in the base of Middash war, near Tamid, it was a permanent flame, permanent flame, near Tamid. But then when the temple was destroyed, the menorah no longer shined. But near Salolo, Hanukkah, that came from the darkness, tells you that the spirit could never be extinguished, could never be in any way annihilated, God forbid. So that's exactly the story. And this is the story of our, our, our history. Many times people wanted to exterminate our spirit. Body, you can kill someone, God forbid, but you could, the spirit they can never kill. And that's what we celebrate on Hanukkah. We'll do a few more. With Hanukkah allowing Jews sovereignty over Israel for a couple of, of more centuries, is there any present focus on reestablishing sovereignty in our land apart from the Mashiach vision? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Happy Hanukkah. I hope the holiday brings you much light and happiness. I was learning about Hanukkah in a class, and the rabbi was speaking about the Maimonidean view that one of the miracles was Jewish sovereignty in the homeland for another 200-plus years. And indeed, after they rededicated the temple and the altar and the Beis Amigdash and the Menorah, so then they still had control of the Beis Amigdash until, tragically, the Romans destroyed it. It struck me that Jewish religion and culture, untainted by Christian or Muslim views and teachings, can't truly be expressed and realized without sovereignty in our indigenous homeland and holy land. Is there any Hasidic teaching that focuses on reestablishing sovereignty in our land apart from that Mashiach vision, the Mashiach vision, which will, will, which will result in all Jews returning to the land? Does the modern state of Israel allow us some semblance of such sovereignty? Somewhat aside, with the rise of anti-Semitism in the EU and in the USA among the, the, neo, the neo-Nazis, Antifa and left, should we, look, should we be looking to relocate to Israel as a safe haven from such vile hate? So the answer is very straightforward. It is only Mashiach that will reestablish sovereignty in Eretz Yisrael. The fact that there is a state of Israel, that there is a government, thank God, that protects the people, is no different than there is in any community where you have a community council, you have a, a body, 
that pr- provides for the needs and the utilities and the protection of its people. But as on a religious level, like it was in the time of the Beis Amigdus, that sovereignty is not just about control and having an army. It's about a spiritual sovereignty. And as the Rebbe Rashab said, the Friedrich Rebbe repeated, we didn't go into Golis, not, not with our will we went into Golis, not with our will we go out of Golis. We can't force God's hand. It is God will decide when the sovereignty will return. That doesn't mean we don't have the great miracles and the great immigration to Erzisron that has happened, especially in the last half a century from all parts of the world and continuously growing. That's all part of the return of the Jewish people to Erzisron. But the actual sovereignty, what we can call Melech HaMashiach, as the Rambam says, is when Mashiach will actually gather everyone and there will be the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. So Hanukkah we celebrate that even in the darkness, both inside of, outside of Israel and within Israel, we still illuminate with the Menorah. What, what will come when Mashiach comes, then we'll have that full sovereignty. So the answer is no, that's not what Hanukkah represents. Sovereignty, Hanukkah represents illuminating that the spirit remains intact, and then comes the time where the spirit and body will unite. And with so many millions of Jews in Israel today, Ken Yerbu, may it only grow, that becomes a perfect container. And Mashiach comes, which could be immediately, should be immediately. We have the table set. As far as encouraging people to go to Israel, it's again case by case. Many people have gone and should go. Some who may have a job or have a responsibility in a mesed, in, in an institution, have to first make sure that they are not leaving a vacuum or a void. But the idea of going to Israel, we know throughout the generations, Jews always aspire to go to Israel. So it's commendable if somebody wants to move there and, that, and, and the conditions are right, by all means. What will, we, what will be different in Messianic times that we will then hold like Beishamai and light the Menorah in descending order? Okay, based on everything we taught, we know that Beishamai, in contrast to Beishil, who says, what we grow one candle, two candles, Beishamai goes the other way around. We start with eight and you go down to one. And actually that is brought in context of Sukkot. Because Sukkot also, the 70... The 70 uh, 70 cattle, um, the 70 cows that are brought are connected, correspond to the 70 nations, and then you go down, you diminish. So that's the other direction. That's why some say that sukkah is connected to Hanukkah, like Shama, it fits very well. So the answer is, well, the main difference between Beishama and Beishil, one of the differences is that Beishil goes by Basar Poyo, in actuality, the first day of Hanukkah, you have one flame that burned. So you light one flame. After eight days, you light eight flames. Beishame goes with Kboshe Koyach, potential. Since the cruise of oil that was found has the power to burn for eight days, so Beishame, since it has that potential, we actualize it right away in eight. And the diminishing is not, God forbid, that he's going against Mylon Bekedis. Tzemach Tzedek explains that's not the case. Because that's a logical reason. You always grow in Gedusha. Because there's also an, an, an idea, a concept, where you take the eight, and then you bring it down to the lower levels, Mamayl Lamata, from Koyach to Poyl. Eight, and then seven, and then six. So diminishing is not a contradiction to Mayl and Bukedish. 
is just another way of drawing that divine energy into existence from the top down, instead of from the bottom up. When Mashiach comes and the world will be completely refined, so earlier we spoke about gradually growing, that's when you're in a state where you first become as a beginner, then you grow and expand and expand till you get to eight, one to eight. Once we'll reach a level where the world will be completely saturated, completely refined, then there's the idea of bringing, we already have the full eight, to bring the eight into all the levels that exist throughout, say, the Yishtash. So it's a question of going, whether you're going from Malchus all the way up to Bina, or you go from Bina to Malchus. Bina is the eighth sphere from the bottom up, and um, Malchus is the eighth sphere from the top down. And finally, when inviting people over for Hanukkah, how do I balance personal tzniyas and shlichus? So this is a general question, not just about Hanukkah. Rabbi dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm a BT. We don't like that term, but okay, you're using it, fine. And I'm now beginning to host my friends and family who are not yet observant for Shabbos and Chagim. And I see this as my shlichus. One thing I'm wondering is how you are supposed to balance personal tzniyas with shlichus, personal modesty. If I have a couple who are not yet observant to my house for Hanukkah, I can't ignore the members of the opposite gender. Or should I? I'm also thinking of my children and how to approach maintaining a high standard of modesty of tzniyas with them as well. Please help me understand from the Rebbe's perspective what does tzniyas look like on shlichus. Thank you so much. So it's just a matter of really being very deliberate and sensitive to the matter. It's not a contradiction. You could have guests at a Shabbos table of both genders, singles, couples, and behave in a very Sinezdika way. It all comes down to your attitude. So this isn't about segregation. During a davening, in a shul, and other things of holiness, so there you need a machitza, separation. But by a Shabbos meal or a Hanukkah lighting and so on, you don't necessarily need that. So how do you balance it? You balance it by being sensitive, by being aware, you say hello to everybody. To ignore somebody is not appropriate, but with a certain discreetness. You see this all the time. You say good Shabbos, whether you're male or female, to both genders. It's all done with a certain sense of modesty. It doesn't have to be done in any way that is inappropriate. This is our challenge. As I said, matters of Kedusha, there's a separation, a segregation due to the Mechitza. But in general conversations... We've talked about this as well in previous programs. Obviously, one has to have boundaries. If somebody begins to speak to you, opposite gender, so certain things that you can speak about, and if it gets more intimate, so to speak, meaning more personal matters, then you have to send them to someone of the same gender. Same thing with learning one-on-one. There are guidelines. There are laws of yichud. But that's already one-on-one in privacy. But as well in public as well, there's always a matter of being sensitive and aware of walking with modesty. And the truth is, tzniyas, modesty is not just with an opposite gender, even with the same gender. You also don't speak in ways that are haughty or ways that are inappropriate. Everything has to be done. You're standing before God. When you're dealing with people, especially Ashlichas, that only lifts the standard and the expectations of doing everything in a very refined and subtle, beautiful way. Okay, let us now cover some other topics. So, this Shabbos and today was Rosh Chedesh Tevis. So let's talk about Rosh Chedesh Tevis. And this week, on Thursday, is Hey Tevis, which is a special significance 
In the year Tavshim Zion, the year when there was the court case over the books, that was the day, as the Rebbe writes in the footnote about this day, it was established in the federal, in the federal court that the Svarim belong to the, the library of Agudas Chidi Chabad, that they're not individual property of anyone, they belong to the body called Chassidic Chabad. So let's just talk a few moments about that. But let me begin with Rosh Chedesh Tevis. In general, Rosh Chedesh is like Rosh Hashanah, we call it Rosh. It's the head of the month, not just the beginning of the month, not just Tchilas HaChedesh. A head, like the central nervous system, contains the entire month. What is the significance of the month of Tevis? So the Gemara tells us, Guf Nenamina Guf, Chedesh Guf Nenamina Guf. It's the month where Achashverosh and Esther were together, and it's a winter month in this hemisphere where a body benefits from another body, warms another body. I know it's a very explicit term, but Chassidus explains, the Rebbe explains, it's when we talk about the physical world as the yesh of this material world, where is it ultimately connected with, as the Alter Rebbe says in Agedes with the yesh amiti, with the true divine yesh, the true divine reality God. Because only God that has no source can create a physical reality like ours that doesn't feel it has a source. So in a sense, the month of Tevis is taking these two ends of the spectrum and saying that they benefit from each other. Meaning God wanted dafka dir betachtenim. Where did he want? Where is the atzmos, the essence of the divine? Not in the higher spiritual worlds. Dafka down in the physical body of this world, the guf, the yesh of this world, that it should be transformed, our egos should be transformed into a divine ego. So Tevis represents that, the warmth we create in a cold month. As I said, in the hemisphere, the, the, the high upper hemisphere, that the northern hemisphere, in Israel, in the United States, everything in the northern hemisphere is winter. You're warming winter, just like Hanukkah, light warms and illuminates the cold and the dark of the night. So Rosh Chedesh Tevis represents the head of that message. Obviously, Tevis has many other messages as well, but that's one of them. In Tevis itself, we have Hey Tevis, which was also a state of darkness. At first, there was a challenge. A challenge about what? About Sifri Kedesh, holy books of the Rebbe, the Fridic Rebbe. Who does it belong to? Is this private property or not? Briefly, what was the big... The big achievement, why was the Rebbe considered such a holiday? Hey, Tavis, such a celebration. You could say it was a personal, the, the personal quarrel between family. Who owns the books? No, because it established not who owns the book, not individual. It established that the books and the Rebbe himself belongs to the Chassidim. Think about it. George Sifton recognized that the relationship between a Rebbe and Chassidim is not like any other relationship. Everybody in this earth has private property, even leaders, even teachers, even rabbis. But to say that, the, as, the, as the Rebbetson said, and the Rebbe said that was the linchpin, the key to the court case, was that the Rebbe himself belongs to Chassidim, which basically makes the Rebbe eternal. When you're an individual person, even if you're a great tzaddik, there comes a point where a person passes away. So it's true, ishtakichyatimibichayui which means his here, his presence, his spiritual presence is here even more than, than when he was alive because his main life was not physical life. It was spiritual life, love, reverence, and faith in God. But still, from a physical point of view, even though you say, his children are alive, so too is he alive. But when you say that he 
and his books and everything that he stood for continues to live on through the chassidim. They belong to chassidim. They're not private property. You're establishing the eternity of the Rebbe and everything he represents. That is a big accomplishment. Similar to Hanukkah. The Menera in the temple, as powerful as it was, it was extinguished, God forbid. But a light that comes out of darkness after the temple was defiled and the olive oil was contaminated and they still could find a pure cruise of oil and they still can light a flame even in the darkest of the dark, that demonstrates something eternal, that these flames will never be extinguished. So the challenge before Hey Tavis was, is this private or not? Does it come to an end if it's private? So it's to establish, no, it's not private, it's public. It belongs to the chassidim. And as such, it lives on forever and ever. So you see also the connection of Heitevis coming right after Hanukkah. Let's talk about the Pasha this week. is also Pasha Vayigash. So here's the first question. Why didn't Joseph notify Yaakov, Jacob, that he was still alive? Since it's a mitzvah to honor one's parents, and when there's an opportunity to do a mitzvah, we are not supposed to delay it. Why did Yosef wait until he recognized his brothers to ask about his father? Yosef was made, a vice, a vice, was made viceroy of the entire Egyptian empire. Anytime he wanted, he could have said to Pharaoh, I need a two-week vacation to go to Israel and visit my father. Why did he wait until he recognized his brothers to take action and ask about his father's welfare and then invite Yaakov to visit Egypt? So the Ramban and other commentaries ask this big question. 22 years. Now some say that maybe it was because Yefsef seen that he wasn't being searched for and he didn't know that, that his father was told that he was killed. So he thought that he fell out of favor. That's what some say. I don't believe that's commentaries that are authoritative commentaries. The Ramban says, to paraphrase, that Yosef understood, as we know, when, the, when his brothers finally, when he finally revealed himself to his brothers and they were so shocked, he said, you didn't send me here, Hashem sent me here. So he understood that his coming to Egypt, as painful as it was, was a divine decree. And he understood that ultimately, as they all knew that Avram was told already by Brisbane Absarim, that they'd be in a land that was not their own. And from them, they would be, then they would go out with great treasures and become a nation, a great nation, after you'd see Mitzrayim. So Yosef, as did Yaakov, as everyone knew, those in the inside, that there was a divine destiny here. They may not have known every detail, how it would play itself out. So Yosef understood when he ended up, Yosef Hurid Mitzrayim, he understood that he was not here just because his brothers were jealous and they sold him into slavery. And he understood that it would come the time when Hashem would determine. So of course I'm sure he had the temptation and wanted to reach out to his father. But he understood God's hand was here. This is the same says about Yitzchok, Rashi says. That Yitzchok knew about Yosef and yet he didn't tell Yaakov. Why? Because he understood that's the time that Hashem wants to keep it from him. He's not going to be the one that reveals it. And then when he saw what happened, and he saw that the brothers had come down to Mitzrayim, he started seeing the fulfillment of the dreams, which was also part of a divine. The dreams was not just Joseph's dream, it was God's plan. 
And then he saw their unity, how they came together. And then he also tested them and saw their connection to Binyamin. So he saw they had all that coming. Now that they're unified in that way, he realized the time had come. Because now they're a keli to reconnect and reunite with Yaakov and his brothers. So the pain was that deep, very deep of not being connected, being able to honor his father. But he understood the deeper reason and ultimately understood God led us here. You can also say that Yosef's role was to be, in the language of Chassidus, take from Atzilus, Avram Yitzhak Yankov, which are Merkava, a chariot, a vehicle for the divine Atzilus, and bring it into the world of Biyah, Mitzrayim, Erva Sa'aretz, in the lowest of worlds. And as such, part of it was being in Agolis, where he does not connect to there. In this darkness, he had to bring light, which he did. And he maintained his integrity, as Yaakov recognized when Yosef sent him the signs of Egla Rufa, sent him chariots to show him that I remember what we had learned back in 22 years ago before we had parted ways. So being in Biyah, there was a time where there's the Golas and then there's a time when there's the reconnection between Yosef and Yaakov and his brothers and then they lived 17 best years in Mitzrayim before the Golas Mitzrayim would begin the harsh exile. Another question. It's recorded in the Torah that Pari gave the entire territory of Goshen to the Jews as a gift. Even though we left Goshen to go to Israel, technically we still own the land there, and that land has value, and it's ours. Even if we don't want to live there, we could make income from renting properties in Goshen as Airbnbs, or we could sell the land and use the money to build yeshivas and shuls. How can we capitalize on this? What shall I tell you? I don't know if that's the case, first of all, halachically, or in any other way that we still land, own the land of Goshen. Even if there is some type of ownership part, maybe that's when Mashiach comes. I've never seen that anywhere that we should go ahead and try to make that demand. Let's just hold on to what God gave us in Eretz Yisrael and not give up any of the land at all. The time will come where Hashem will decide what belongs to whom. That's my response to that. And there's plenty of Airbnbs you can build elsewhere. Okay. Next question. Who was Asnas, the wife? Asnas, the, Asnas, the wife of Yosef, the wife of Joseph. There are accounts in the Medrash that she was the daughter of Dina and was conceived during the assault by Shechem, and that Dina's brothers wanted to kill the baby because they were embarrassed. So Dina and Yaakov put a necklace on the baby with an inscription of the story of what happened, and then abandoned the baby near a wall in Egypt, and thankfully Patifra found the baby and adopted her. Does this make sense? What were the brothers thinking? You can't just kill a baby because you are embarrassed. What lesson is the Torah teaching us here on what is the proper way to behave in these situations. Well, the fact is it's a medrash, so that's not a question, does it make sense? The medrash says that's the case. And that's how Yosef knew, because he saw, he saw this sign, and he realized this is his family. So that's why he married Osnast. What it comes down, first of all, is the redemption, that even though Dina was violated by Shechem, and still, as Chassidus explains, there's always a spark of holiness. Because it was Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. 
So from that came the spark, and Yosef understood that with her, and it will have children with her. So she was given to Patifer and became the wife of Yosef. That's on a very basic level. On a deeper level, you could say that in every given situation, Yosef was in Egypt and he realized how difficult it was here. But he also saw signs from God. This was one of the signs. That no matter what the situation is, you can find light. Going back to the theme of Hanukkah. And that's what Yosef did. He redeemed whatever he was able to redeem. And as a result, built a family, Menashe and Ephraim in Mitzrayim, which is a tremendous achievement. That's why their names refer to that. Kineshani, Ephrani Ba'aretz. That from this land of Egypt and its darkness, he blossomed. He grew something that thrived, that blossomed and grew. And indeed, when Menashe and Ephraim are blessed by Yaakov, you see that as well in their blessings. So it's whatever situation a person is in, even though it began with a very painful story with Dina and Shechem, ultimately is redeemed. That's the bottom line lesson. And finally, one more question regarding Vayigash. What lessons do we learn from Yosef, Joseph telling his brothers that God, not you, sent me here? What lessons... Okay. There's a beautiful lesson of Ashgach Pratis in the Pasha when the brothers are crying and are very upset and trying to apologize for Yesef for throwing him into a pit of snakes and selling him into slavery. Instead of being angry at them and biting them, Yesef said, you shouldn't be upset, this was all part of God's plan, and he sent me here. In this case, we can clearly see that Hashem wanted Yesef to be there so he could save the world from the seven years of famine by suggesting building storage facilities during the seven good years. But my question is, how do we apply this in our lives to learn positive lessons? In some big things in life, sometimes it's clear and obvious that Hashem sends us somewhere to accomplish something. But very often, and with little things, we don't always see it. For example, every time we accidentally make a wrong turn while driving somewhere, should we stop and say we made a mistake on the map, but Hashem must have sent us here for a good reason? So let's stay here for a while until we figure out the reason and do a positive act to fulfill our mission. Okay, so first of all, God leads the footsteps of a person. So no matter where we go, whether it's a big thing or it's a small thing, we learn from Yosef that everything is with a divine purpose. Does that mean if a person gets lost, they have to stay there? Not necessarily, because you may be going somewhere. But if for whatever reason God wants you to stay there and you don't have a choice, don't start becoming sour and bitter about it. Understand there's a reason for that. When my father was in the hospital. And the Rebbe sent me with Lekach, Erev Yom Kippur, to give him Lekach in the hospital. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he was there, so Yom Kippur as well. And the Rebbe said to me, tell your father, I'm giving Lekach, and he should have a sweet and healthy year. And then the Rebbe smiled and said, and tell him when he'll finish his mission in the hospital, where he is, he will be released. And then Rabbi Chadakov came after Yom Kippur and asked my father whether he finished his mission. Even There he was in the hospital. Even a hospital, no one goes there to, for, to, for, to have fun or go on a mission. But once you're there. So to say that every situation, yes, if you got lost and then you ask somebody that in, in directions, it could very well be there's a reason for you to meet this person and say something. To stay there 
Not necessarily. If you can leave and go back to where you belong, let's say you, people are waiting for you, at, let's say a simcha or something else, or you're going for some speaking engagement to say, because I got lost, that means my purpose is not to go on to do my mission? Absolutely not. But if for whatever reason it's not in your control, then you have to use it to understand that's what God wants. You're never stuck. You're not stuck in a snowstorm. You're not stuck in any situation. It's always meant to bring out something bigger. And every situation is that way. That's how I would explain the distinction. Okay. We'll conclude with one follow-up. And this was about irreverent questions. So in the last few weeks, someone wrote about an individual who's writing irreverent questions to provoke me. And that person who writes those questions actually responded. And here's a response to his response. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was very moved by a letter you read on your Sunday podcast from a self-proclaimed apicatus. Quote-unquote, let's call it. Nish from cracking semichkes vetmanam apicatus. Not from cracking uh, sunflower seeds as one becoming apicatus. But okay, he's calling himself that. Who sometimes says irreverent things when he's, when he's upset. It was apparent to me that this person isn't really an apicatus. Apicatus means a heretic, <laughs> an apostate. Because when, but, it's, but it's apparent to me that this person isn't really an apicatus because within his letter, he did praise Hashem and the Teda. He stated he learns Teda a few hours a week. And he did ask for God to bless everyone in the community, even those he disagrees with. It reminded me of a story written at the end of the tractate Sukkot, which has a connection to Hanukkah, because it took place during the Greek siege of Israel, when they came to desecrate the temple, the Beis Amigdash. The Gemara says a disenfranchised Jewish woman named Miriam Bas Bilga married a Greek general, and while sh- showing him around the Beis Amigdash, the temple, she did the most irreverent, disrespectful act by taking off her dirty shoes and slamming them on the Mizbeach, the altar, while calling God a wolf that devours the community's money but doesn't help them when they are under siege and suffering. The Rebbe once explained that on the outside it appeared this Miriam was doing a disrespectful act, but on the inside it was her neshama, her soul, expressing Avis Yisrael, love for Jews, in a very beautiful way because deep down she really cared about her fellow Jews and was hurt by seeing them suffer. I would guess that this person who wrote the letter is also very deeply hurt when he sees injustices, although sometimes he might express it in not an appropriate manner. I still think it's coming from a place of care and goodness, and it's another great example of the beauty and power of the Jewish neshama soul. Happy Hanukkah to you and your viewers, and thank you for these great Torah programs. Okay, an excellent way that captures the light of Hanukkah in every place possible, even in dark places. And with that, I want to wish everyone a very freilichen conclusion of Hanukkah. May we take the light of Hanukkah and the miracles of Hanukkah that illuminate and pierce even the darkest moments and the darkest situations into the entire year, that we should have no longer any darkness. Kate sum lacheshech. should be an end to all darkness. And we should only have the great light that came from the darkness of the past and march into the Geula, mitis v'ashlema, we will have complete light. A permanent, eternal flame, an eternal light with the return of the return of the Beis HaMidosh HaShlishi, Mashiach Tzidkenu. Freilich and Hanukkah, Freilich and Tomid for a very good week. We're here every week. This has been Chesidah Supplied. My life Chesidah Supplied every week, Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Freilich and Hanukkah, and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chesidah Supplied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chesidahsupplied.com slash donate.